0: When I was working at AWS, I often wondered, what was AWS's single biggest fumble? And I think it might actually be letting Jeff Lawson leave. Twilio is now a $60 billion communications API behemoth, and it could easily have fit within one of AWS's services, and it would have a lock on the communications network infrastructure of the internet. Uh, Now it's an independent company that is gobbling up the likes of Segment, SendGrid, and Authy. I typically try to keep these clips to under 10 minutes, but Jeff is such an eloquent speaker and he's got his stories on lock. So I cannot resist giving you a little bit more than 10 minutes of the origin story of Twilio.
1: What was the inspiration for Twilio? What caused you to have the will to go back into the game for what I think was your fourth startup, your third hardcore tech bet, when you'd seen the promised land and fallen a bit short multiple times?
2: You know, at that point, I said, "I've done three startups in a row, and two things. One, my bank account was empty. It was net. I mean, credit cards maxed out. Like classic story. Done that whole thing. We hadn't taken salaries in years, and and I was always curious, like, what happens in those big companies? I knew in my head, like, well, if I'm an entrepreneur, success means building one of those kinds of companies one day." And so that combined with like financial desire to be like, okay, let me recharge here a bit. I said, let me go work at a big company. Let me go learn things that I've, I've not ever been exposed to doing startups. Ultimately got an offer to be a uh, product manager at uh, a new thing called Amazon Web Services. And, and so but, you were in at the very ground floor of
1: Amazon Web Services. You had um, been a founder of multiple businesses before that. And I want to come back to some of the influence on Amazon in how you've you've built Twilio, but talk a little bit about the experience at Amazon and the experience at StubHub in particular
2: leading to the genesis of what became Twilio. So I was very early at AWS, one of the first product managers, and it was an amazing time to be at Amazon and Amazon Web Services. But when I left Amazon, it was because I knew I wanted to start my next thing. I just had that itch, it's time. So I set out looking at a bunch of different ideas. And one of the things that I realized looking back on my career, like the three startups that I had had, was that at every one of those companies, there were really two things in common. First was that at every one of those companies, even though they were very different businesses, we were using the power of software to build quickly and iteratively to serve our customers. But the other common thread among all three of those companies, was that in building those companies, we inevitably needed great communications in order to engage with our customers. And it was different points in time in the customer life cycle at the different companies. You know, sometimes it was during our marketing, sometimes it was during our sales, sometimes it was when we were trying to fulfill on the product itself. There are all these different ways that we kept coming up with these ideas. We said, wouldn't it be great if, when this happens, we notify a customer you know, that their ticket has shipped or that their, uh, you know, their repair order is ready or whatever it was. So we kept having these ideas. And every time we had these ideas, we said, that'd be really neat. But I'm a software developer. What do I know about making a phone ring? Right. That's just that's like magical. I have no idea how that works. And so we would turn to the companies who seemed like they did know how it worked. We turned to AT&T or we turned to Cisco and we'd say, hey, you know, we have this idea. Can you help us build it? And every time they'd hear us out and they'd say, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. We think we can help you with that. You know, first step is you're going to roll out a bunch of copper wire from the carrier to your data center. And then step two, you're going to rack up a bunch of hardware like telco hardware. And then step three, you're going to buy a um, a software stack that sits on top of the hardware. And then step four, uh, because none of that does what you want it to do, it doesn't even work together out of the box, you're going to bring in a bunch of consultants, and they're going to come, and we're going to do a big integration project. six or 12 months
1: later, you may have a
2: dial tone eventually. Oh, that would have been a luxury. These are like 24-month timelines. And they were like, millions of dollars, and, tw- and two years from now, we think we can get this thing working, sign here, and we'll get started. So you saw so you saw the pain point firsthand, three, trying three to... Three times in a row.
1: It, and so, with the developer mindset, you essentially, as your own customer, you
2: said, this is real, I need to go do it. Yeah, so I looked at it like, well, if I'm having this experience at every company, I bet all sorts of developers are out there having this, feeling this need for communications, yet just dismissing it. Like, well... That'd be great, but that's not what I do. Like, I don't know how to do that, and so well, let me think about other ideas for how I can serve my customer. And so we said, what if communications was a first-class citizen in the toolbox of every developer in the world? And at the time, this was 2008, you eight. You're like, well, I can see how this is going to play out. Like AWS is going to provide compute, Storage and every developer will be able to pull these building blocks off the shelf and plug them in to build apps.
1: Which was an advantage of being inside AWS. You saw the momentum building long before the external world probably did. Mm -hmm. And so the API model you believed in, and you were willing to bet your career on
2: that. Yeah, absolutely. It just made total sense because I, as a developer, thought about when I'm looking for ways of solving problems, I remember there's these signals. I used to give a talk called Self-Service, Pricing, and Documentation, The Mating Calls of the Northern Spotted Doer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we should go if you can a bestseller everywhere yeah, exactly if you can provide a link to that in the podcast somehow it, it's and it was basically like what are the ways in which uh, companies empower developers and it was all about can you get started because this or was b- brand new ground yeah. the industry hadn't is your pricing published on the website or not, because if your pricing isn't published, then a developer, why would they devote their time to building on something where they have no idea how much it's gonna cost them? Or documentation, literally the thing that allows a developer to get started working with API is public documentation. At the time, often you would have to sign NDAs to get documentation for a product. And then self-service, the idea that a developer, if they're working on a problem at midnight, can just take your solution and start playing around with it to solve the problem, as opposed to the contact sales button that says, no, 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 You need to schedule an appointment for a week from now when, if you're lucky, a salesperson will talk to you about our product. You're like, well, that's not how developers work. That's not the maker way of doing things. And so brought all those things to the table under the belief that experimentation is the prerequisite to innovation. And if you can help a developer and help companies run more experiments for what their customers need, then you're going to get more innovation. And so if you ruthlessly remove the the friction, the barriers to experimentation, that is what you need to enable innovation. And so that, that was sort of the guiding principle that we started the company with. Can
1: you think back on some of the hard days of Twilio and moments where maybe you went home at night saying, I'm not sure we're going to be around in a week or I'm not sure that we can realize this
2: full opportunity? Yeah, I think there's two moments I'll talk about. First was in the very early days. So we built... Uh, our very you know first version of the product. First of all, we did some customer research. Um, we had the idea. We're like, what if there was this platform that let you plug in an API and make phone calls? And the way I did market testing was I would go talk to potential customers, whatever the idea was. Uh, and so for Twilio, the potential customers were developers. I'd go talk to friends of mine who are developers, and I'd say, hey, you know, I'm working on this idea. When I pitched the idea for Twilio to developers, the developer was like, oh, well, that's a, that's a you know... How about the Warriors? And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is a bad idea. But about a minute later, the conversation changed. We talked about the Warriors, whatever it was. And then about a minute later, the developer, the customer I was talking to would would circle back and say, well, hold on a second. I have a question. That thing you were describing with the phone calls, could I alert customers when the package ships from the e-commerce site I recently built? And I would say, yes, yes, you could. And they would say, oh, uh, yeah, let me know if I can play around with that. I'd love to check it out. And every time I tested the idea with a developer, the same thing happened. You could see at first they were like, oh, I'm not sure what he just said. And then the gears would would start turning. They would connect it with some problem they had recently been trying to solve and realize that, oh, wait, yeah, I, I actually would have just needed that. How could I, you know, yeah, I would like to play with that. And so when I saw that happening, that gave me the confidence to, like, drop everything else I was thinking about and working on and just work on Twilio. And so I went about raising money in the summer of 2008. And two things happened. First, nobody understood going after developers. The model didn't exist
1: at the time. Yeah, there was no such thing. Yep.
2: They were like, developers aren't a market. Developers don't have the checkbook. They, can't, they have no buying power. This isn't a market. And so the people said, go build an app. But that's not really the vision. That's not really what we want to go do. And that was the first thing. The second thing that happened, it was the summer of friggin' 2008. So nobody, financial meltdown, crisis, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember walking out of one prominent early stage VC's office. It was the day after Lehman Brothers collapsed. They were like, look, we think this is really interesting, but we're just, no, like we're not cutting checks anymore. We're closed (laughs) until further notice. So that night, did you consider... Maybe this isn't meant to be. Yeah. So after that happened, that was the culmination of a whole summer of fundraising, which was like, okay, we got, this is our one, And we were pretty confident that it was Mm -hmm. done. I mean, usually the Monday morning, the partner meeting is more of a formality than it is a decision. And so we literally had not a, we didn't even have a bank account because we didn't have any, we didn't have a dime to put in it. I remember I had a call with the other founders and we said, you know, I've got bad news. (laughs) They're not. And we literally like, we, we had zero, like the fundraising process was just done. Like there was no one else left. And I said, I, you know, we just couldn't raise money. And we said, maybe, maybe it's a bad idea, maybe this is wrong, maybe they were right, we shouldn't be going after developers. But we kind of looked at it and we we're like, well, we've got all these early customers and they are loving the product and they're giving us great feedback and they're building on it. Some of them even launched some stuff even though we told them not to because it's a prototype quality product at this point. And we said, I think we should just listen to our customers. We got our parents to put in a small amount of money. We continued plowing ahead towards a launch. We launched the product publicly in November of 2008. Uh, with I think about $20,000 in our bank account that was provided by our parents and immediately revenue started rolling in. Like the the day we launched, people would sign up and put in their credit. I remember thinking like, oh my God, they're giving us their credit cards. This is amazing. And within a month after launch uh, and starting to see the interest growing and and literally the pennies started rolling in and and they started adding up more and more. Some of those angels that we had talked to, we circled back to them. And within a few months after that, we had closed a seed round Uh, of folks. And so it just went to show me that like, you know, back to strategy, it's like if you just listen to your customers, and in that case, our customers are pointing us in the right direction. And we just had to keep listening to them. And as entrepreneurs, keep maintain the focus on customers, and then other things will fall into line. And they did. So
1: there was uh, multiple points in the founding where uh, you fundamentally could have taken a left turn and taken the easy way out and gone back to the full time job and didn't. But you said there were two. It sounded like, uh, was there something that came to mind post-launch, after you'd committed, after you'd gotten funding, where Twilio almost ceased
2: to exist? I've always been a believer that in the cloud, your number one value proposition you're selling is trust. Because think about it, no matter what you do, like if you're a communications API, if your infrastructure is a service, what you're fundamentally telling your customer is trust me to run this part of your business for you that's the fundamental value proposition of the cloud, is trust. And trust that as a vendor, I can have more uptime, I can have more privacy, more security, uh, better feature roadmap. All those things are going to be better if you trust me to specialize and do this one thing really well than customer having you do this on your own. So I fundamentally believe that. When we first stood up the very first prototype at Twilio... So the one i told you about we gave the developers really access to yep uh, i remember we stood it up literally the very first production machine we had running and we said okay well, we're going to give our very first customers access to play around with it and i asked my co-founders I said, all right who's carrying the pager tonight and they laughed and i was i was actually serious we
1: got to keep the wheels on the car here yeah
2: yep. cuz i'm like well we have customers now and so if like you know if it doesn't work then you know what are they going to think and so, at the, from the very beginning, we've always had this very operational mindset that trust is the number one thing we're selling. And so, from the very first day, we had an a production server, literally, it ran on one EC2 instance at that moment in time. We took very seriously this idea of like operational excellence is the number one thing customers are paying us for. A couple of years later, when we were off and running, I remember there was if you lost your auth token, so the security token you use to, to authenticate with the API. And you needed a new one. We hadn't built that into the console yet, like, you know, rotate your API keys kind of thing. And so you could write into support and say, hey, I need to rotate my keys. And if you did, and the company was, I think, five people at the time, that request would end up at my co founder's desk. The way he did it was he, like, ran a little script to generate a new auth token, like just a random whatever. And he would go manually into the production database and he would do a, you know, update table users, right, set off token equal, and he'd paste in the value. And I, like, <laughs> I do not believe in this. Like, when I have done things, like, I always wrote scripts for everything. Nothing, you would never, but I, I I, couldn't always convince my co-founders that that was the right thing to do. And this was one of those things where he had just gotten into the habit of doing it. Sure, dude, it so far. Yeah, Absolutely. And, it, and it worked so far. it worked so far. Until the day it didn't when he said update users set off token equal to, and he forgot the where clause and he hit return and he blew out all of our customers off token. It did a global update. Global update every <laughs> row mil, like, you know, I don't remember how many customers we had yeah. at that point in time, but every customers off token got updated to this random string. And I remember I was in an interview. I was interviewing somebody and my co-founder busts in the door <laughs> and he goes, uh, Jeff, I, I, I'm like, I'm in an interview. And he's like, uh, I, I've done something very bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, can it wait? He's like, no, 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 no it Absolutely can't. Like, not. I, and I was like, okay, excuse me, candidate. I need to find out what's going on. I, I, the candidate actually uh, did end up taking the job. I was wondering, like, what did that person yeah, exactly. think was going on? And uh, and so we like started the process of we had to do a database restore from last night, but everyone who but here's the crazy thing at the time we had one customer, group me, who represented nearly half of our revenue and so we had one, we had this huge customer concentration issue at that moment in time. So my favorite part about this story, so everyone's hard down because no one has auth tokens anymore that are working with our API. We said we we pointed to one person and we said, "You go call GroupMe and ask them their auth token." Oh jeez. <laughs> Just have them read it to us, and we'll we'll get them back up and running. Type it back in. Yeah, exactly. That was literally our process to get half of our revenue back up and running. And then for everyone else, we had to do a database restore. And then for them, people who had signed up that day, we had to email them and say we're we're sorry we lost your. Anyway, that was a big wake up call again around operational excellence, and basically forbid nobody is allowed to go into a prod database anymore because this is why.
0: This clip was from the Bessemer Ventures Cloud Giants podcast. I think it had a pretty strong showing. It's one of the newer VC podcasts, but still nothing on the level of Andreessen Horowitz. But still, I think BVP has made some extremely good investments. Check out their memos if you haven't already, where they published the Twilio memo. And yeah, I love these kind of access and this kind of storytelling. Obviously, just this is just the stuff that they like to tell you, and it's not the whole truth. But it's as good as we can get.